Are you awake? Here you go. <laughs> Good morning. Um, uh, as John said, I am from Hawaii, and so um, I know. How many of you have ever been to Hawaii? Oh, great. Good. So you know, there's this kind of uh, when you go on a tour bus or you go to a lua or something. Um, there's this little cheesy thing that folks do. They said, you know, aloha, and you say aloha, right? So I'm going to ask you to be a little cheesy this morning, not to, not to be cheesy. I'll, t I'll explain the meaning of it. There's really meaning behind it. But um, it's a way of greeting. So I'm going to say aloha, and if you could respond, aloha. Okay, here we go. Aloha. aloha. Yeah, that's pretty darn good, man. Um, we should get a tour bus and a uh, project to go to Hawaii. Um, there is meaning to that. It's not just a cheesy little tourist thing, really. Aloha is a combination of two words, two Hawaiian words. Alo and ha. Alo means bone. Ha means breath. So there's an ancient Hawaiian greeting where two friends, like two brothers or two, two guys that know each other, would hold each other's, would meet face to, uh, hit their, their foreheads and their noses would touch, and they put their hands around each other's necks. And they breathed. And that's a kind of way of greeting, saying we share the breath of life. Now, you know what's interesting? There's an old missionary um, that uh, had this book called With Eternity in Their Hearts. And what he said was, God has planted a seed, a redemptive analogy, they call it, a seed of a story in every culture to point people to God. Ha is breath. And maybe you remember in the Old Testament, the breath of God, there's a hymn, that, Oh, breath of God comes sweeping through us. There's an old hymn to that effect. But ha is breath in Hawaiian. But um, in the Old Testament, God's breath, the ruach of God, brings life. Do you remember in Ezekiel 34, I think it is, where there's val or 37, there's a valley of dry bones, and God breathes life into these bones. They come rattling through, and, and there's life. Even back in Genesis, do you remember when God creates Adam out of the dust of the earth, and he breathes on them? His spirit is breath. So aloha has great meaning. It means we share the breath of life, the breath of God. So that's tucked in there somewhere, but um, just I wanted to explain that because there is really significance in that word by itself. So um, this, excuse me, I'm going to put my iPad on it. I'm kind of getting to the 21st century, so now I'm preaching from this electronic deal. But I'm kind of a tech dinosaur, if you know what I mean, because I'm not, not sure how it works. So this morning, um, I'm really glad to be here. Um, as uh, John said, uh, I'm from Hawaii, so when I came to uh, help the Paso Search Committee get ready, um, we shared the fact that we were f he was in Hawaii, and um, he became a Christian at Aia Heights Lutheran Church, right? It's a really interesting story. It's a charismatic Lutheran church. Like, go figure that one out. Is that right? Um, so the Spirit of God sneaks up in different places that you don't expect, and he does things that sometimes are really unexpected. So I want to suggest that even today, the Spirit of God might do something that none of us expect. He has a way of ambushing us in a good way because he so longs for us to know him. Do you remember the story of Moses in Exodus 3? Moses is just traipsing along. He's, um, he's uh, had some bad situations. He killed a guy, an Egyptian, in Egypt. So he's running for his life, and now he's in the desert of Midian. And as he's out there, he's you know, here managing the flocks of his father-in-law, Jethro, and he, the bleeding of goats and sheep is in the background. And as he's traipsing along in the Midian desert, there's this bush that's on fire, but it doesn't burn up. So he goes, I, I need to stop and look at this thing. So he goes there, and then God's voice comes, Moses, Moses. 
Moses was surprised. It was very unexpected. And God was speaking to Moses because he had something for him to lead his people. So I want to suggest to you that maybe even today, God is eager for us to meet him at a kind of a burning bush. So I, I, I want to just suggest that to you. And again, uh, Pastor Dan and I have been chatting over the last few weeks, and he mentioned that he's starting a series on the parables of Jesus. And you remember way back when, a couple weeks ago, he preached on Mark chapter 4. And he talked about the parables and the reason for parables. They're not just like nice little stories or illustrations. They are meant to actually confound or to confuse initially so that we'll stop like a burning bush and say, hey, what do you mean by that? Remember that? Let me see a few nods. I hope that's what I <laughs> Dan told me. But the, the parables, you remember in Mark chapter 4, here's what Jesus says. He gives this great parable of the sower and the seed and the four kinds of soil. Remember that? And there's uh, lots of people, scabs of people. But a ton of people leave, and who's left? Just his 12 students, disciples, and a few others. And they go up to Jesus and say, dude, what do you mean, man? Like, what exactly, sorry, that's paraphrased, you know, 2022. What exactly does this parable mean? And here's what Jesus says. Remember, he says, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything remains in parables so that they may be ever seeing but not perceiving, ever hearing but not understanding. So the parables were not meant to tell a nice little ditty of a story. They're meant to make a stop and say, what the heck do you mean by that? So we got two parables in front of us this morning, okay? And so I want just uh, to keep that in mind. We're going to do something different um, because I want us to not just kind of skate through the, the sermon and stuff. Uh, believe me, I'm not, I'm not, you know, like uh, the big name preacher, but God speaks even to donkeys, so I believe he can speak through me. Amen? <laughs> not too much amen. I'm glad you didn't hear <laughs> too, too enthusiastically. But the parables are meant to hook us, to get us to stop, to engage, and to ask, what do you mean, right? So I'm going to read the parables, two parables out of the three in Luke 15. I'm going to read them again slowly, and I'd like you to do this. I invite you. You don't have to. If it would be helpful. I want you to close your eyes and imagine yourself on the scene in this, these stories, right there as it is. I'm going to read from my Bible. Uh, maybe, Andy, we could put it up on the screen. Actually, I'm going to read it from the screen again. That's a good idea. So um, I'm going to read it a couple times, slowly. But I'd like you to imagine being on the scene, being around these people. So Jesus has been, in chapter 14, he's been at a Pharisee's house, a prominent Pharisee's house. They've been eating, and then he cruises and goes somewhere else. But chapter 15 opens here. He says, um, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around Jesus to hear him. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law were muttering, they're murmuring. And that word in the Hebrew, the original language, is like this buzzing of bees. They're complaining, and they're doing it incessantly, like again and again. What's going on here? They're complaining, and they're saying, this man, Jesus, welcomes sinners and eats with them. Not only does he welcome them, he eats with them. Now, you remember in that day, you took great care who you ate with because it meant that you trusted them and you accepted them. Now, Jesus is being very dramatically radical because he's doing something that is very unconventional and really disturbing because what happened in the religious people is they'd say, I invite you to my house, you invite me to your house. And this is kind of reciprocal tit and tat, right? But it's always like everybody's got an invitation to go to somebody else's house. 
But Jesus in chapter 14 is described, if you throw a banquet, don't invite your friends. They'll go and invite you back. Invite the lame, the poor, those who can't. So Jesus is saying something very different about dining patterns in uh, his day. Now, you remember, Jesus was, if you remember this, Jesus was probably Jerusalem's most popular dinner guest. In chapter 5 of Luke, uh, he, he sees a Levi, a tax collector, another tax collector, and he says, drop what you're doing, come follow me. And Levi does. And what happens is, right after that, he throws this big banquet. He invites some of his old buddies, tax collectors, and some other sinners. He also invites some religious types, more Pharisees and ta- uh, teachers of the law. And Jesus is there, too. He's, one, he's the guest of honor. But what's interesting is that the Pharisees and the tax collectors, uh, uh, teachers of the law, again say, hey, why, to the disciples, why is your master eating with sinners? And Jesus turns to them and he says, a doctor comes not for those who are well, but for the sick. And he says, I came not to call righteous people, those who have their acts cleaned up, I came to call sinners. Now, do you remember that um, in, in the book of Romans, there's a first in chapter 3, here's what Paul says about sinners. He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. No, not one. Anyone who thinks that they're not a sinner is gravely mistaken. So you got these religious types, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and they think, oh, we're pretty clean, man. We, we try to do God's will all the time. You know that Pharisaism is the disease of those who are devoted. I'll say it again. Pharisaism, or becoming a Pharisee with that same attitude, is the disease of the devoted. Now, I don't know if you've been hanging around Jesus in the church for a long time, but I have for a few years. And one of the things I have to be careful of doing is not looking down my nose at, oh, those sinners. And that's one of the things that is a warning for us in these parables, friends. You know that the church is the only institution that exists for the sake of its non-members. We're not here just to make everything pretty and nice for us every week. We're here for the sake of those who are sinners, who are far from God. And we would take great care to check our attitudes. You think, oh, it's a nice church. You guys have put on an extension and stuff. So what if there's some folks here that just don't fit the clean-cut description? Why do we exist as a church? We exist for for folks who are not yet in God's family, friends. And that should disturb us. It disturbs me. I live in Minneapolis, and it's so easy driving uh, on the streets, oftentimes at street corners. You have folks who have these cardboard signs. You may have seen them saying, homeless, Anything can help. And I've caught myself sometimes saying, oh, I just got to move to the right lane so I don't have to be near them. This is just this past week. But then I remember Jesus saying, who did I come for, son? Who did I come for? I came to seek and save the lost. Not those guys who are pretty, but those who are needy. And I tell you, in my role working with pastors, it's very easy to just kind of work with the clean cut folks, not the dirty and down and outers. But Jesus says, hang out with the people I hung out with. Those who can't return the favor, can't take you out to lunch, can't have you over to their home for dinner. Those who are maybe what you might be tempted to think are sinners. 
So uh, I realize we're going to get out of here by 11 o'clock, so I'm not going to preach too much. This is such a great text. Uh, I have to be careful not to go on and on about it. So I'll stop there. I want to read that. Then Jesus told them this parable, first of two. It's actually first of three parables in chapter 15. The third one we won't cover today. It's that famous one, the parable of the lost son. You have the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, or the prodigal son, as it's famously known as. We're not going to cover that one today, but it's famous, quite famous. But Jesus tells three parables in a row about something lost and something found. So here's the first one. Jesus told them this parable, and he draws his hearers in. He says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep. So in that day, it was probably somebody who was you know, fairly wealthy with a good flock of a hundred sheep. But each one of those sheep is money and something that uh, the shepherd would depend on for his livelihood, right? Suppose one of you, one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one. Don't you leave the 99? And in that day, people understand our friends and neighbors would take care of the sheep, the 99. Don't you go and look, you go high and low, leave the 99 in the open country, and go after the lost sheep until when? Until he finds it. It doesn't say how long. It doesn't say how many days. It doesn't say how much it costs. He seeks the lost sheep until he finds it. So we don't know how long it is, but there's an absolute relentlessness He's committed to find that one lost sheep. And when he does, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, guys, have rejoice with me because this one sheep that I lost is now found. Rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. So there's a community that celebrates that. Have, I don't know if you've ever experienced that here or any other church you've been in, but when somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ, and they don't have to have this super dramatic story, like I was a druggie and Jesus rescued me from a life of sin, or I was a prostitute and Jesus took me out of that. It doesn't have to be that dramatic. It can be something very, very unconventional, very ordinary. But when somebody comes to faith in Jesus, it's like a baby. I saw somebody with a baby in here. And they're is, are they still in here? Baby's really quiet. It's wonderful. <laughs> and it, you know, if he or she makes noise, no problem. It's they're being a kid. But the thing is. When a baby comes into our lives, if you're grandparents or in a church, isn't that exciting? Like, new life. In the same way, when somebody comes to faith in Jesus, they're a baby in Christ. There's something that good that happens. It excites and encourages us as believers. We re we're reminded, this is why we're in the business of being a church, is to help people come to faith in Jesus and to discover being found. Discover the new life in Jesus. Your banner up there says, a new beginning. Catch the spirit. Pentecost was a few weeks back. And in that moment, you remember that story in Acts, where the folks are gathered, Jesus has gone up to heaven, and they're gathered in prayer, and something happens that's way, way off the charts. This wind comes. It's almost like this, uh, this the, the atmosphere is electric in that, in that room. But they begin to do something none of us have ever done. They spoke in tongues, like, what's going on? And the tongues are languages of people around who can hear it from different nations who've come to Jerusalem to worship. Well, God was doing a new thing there. And God is doing a new thing here. There's a text in Isaiah in four, chapter 43, verses 18 and 19. And the, uh, the prophet says, Do not dwell on the past. 
God has done some great things in the past. But he says, don't live in the past. Behold, God says through the prophet, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? Um, you know, Dan asked you to pray. Please do. Not just today, not just tonight, but pray as, your, as the Spirit prompts you throughout these next days. As your search team looks for and seeks the right new shepherd to come and lead here at Bethel. God is already doing something. He's up to something. So our job is just to detect what he's doing and come along and follow along with him. Amen? Yeah, it's a simple thing. The, the pressure's not on us. God is doing his work, and he says, follow. Jesus says, follow me, right? He doesn't say, go lead. He does say, lead others, yes, but Jesus says, follow me. And Paul the apostle says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. So we are to be people that follow Jesus first and foremost. Your search team, pray for them. Pray now that as the, the want ad as Dan put his out, but pray that God will be moving amongst just the right person to come and be your new shepherd. Um, I'm just going to hold it like this. So these tax collectors and sinners are sitting around. They're, they're muttering. Uh, Jesus tells his first parable. Then he tells the second about the, the lost coin. Here's what's in common with these stories, these parables. The first one is something's lost and something's found. You notice that in the first case, there's one sheep out of 100 that's lost and found. In the second case, it's one silver coin, but it's a day's wage. Friends, maybe to us it's not that big a deal, but that's really important to this woman because she's lost one day's wage in one of those silver coins. And it's very possible that was part of a head bracelet that was part of her dowry when she got married. But it's very precious to her. So look what she does. She lights a lamp. She sweeps the house, every corner, until she finds it. Again, same as the shepherd, right? She looks until she finds it. She doesn't give up until she finds it. Friends, that's the way God is with sinners. That's the way God has been with us. And should we not be concerned for the rest of the world, for other sinners who don't yet know Jesus? Because that's really what the business we're in. Okay? So um, these two things have in common. Something lost and something found. And then there's a community of rejoicing and celebration. The last story, which we won't get to today, is the story about the lost son. I don't know about you, but um, I've been a pastor for a little bit. I have two boys, David and Jonathan, and um, there's no guarantees in life, right? So David, in his uh, in sophomore year, I think, of college, he went to Bethel University, a Christian school, but going to Christian school doesn't guarantee anything. Uh, we were sitting at a dinner table, Sue, my wife, and I, and then our two boys, David and Jonathan. And um, David said, I have an announcement. Uh, he said, uh, Mom and Dad, I'm no longer a Christian. And you can imagine, as a, as a parent, that just cuts you to the heart, eh? And your first thing is, what did we do wrong? God, could we have done something better? And in the mercy of God, he gave us the presence of mind said <laughs> to just respond, oh, that's interesting, not freak out, <laughs> which we did do later. When the kids were gone, we went upstairs and we just flipped out. Like, oh my gosh, what have we done? And we wept and wept. And don't sell short the power of our preaching mom or dad. My wife has been faithfully praying for our kids. So I want to tell you parents, God goes looking for our kids. God goes looking for us. God goes looking for sinners until he finds them. Okay? So our boys are in San Francisco now. They're starting a bone broth business. Don't ask me what that is. They boil bones and sell the, sell the liquid. Um, 
but um, they still ask us, would you pray for us? As they've been interacting with the city to try to get permits, as they try to find vendors who will cook their broth and help them distribute it, they ask us to pray. Our younger one, Jonathan, if you remember to pray for Jonathan, he's, um, they're both fit as fiddles. Jonathan is six feet. <laughs> you wouldn't know it from his dad. But um, D- David is 5'10", and they love each other a bit. You know, it's, it's, it's a gift that the boys love each other so very much. Um, but um, Jonathan has been having these um, uh, digestive things for the last, the last three weeks. He's been to doctors. They checked COVID. Not all that's not, he doesn't have COVID, but we don't know what it is. And so he, what he's realizing is he is realizing he doesn't have the answers to everything. He's 29, so, you know, kids that age, you think, oh, I know everything. I'm, I'm invincible. But he's coming to the end of himself. And he actually said to Sue, Sue, my wife, had talked to him uh, a few weeks back. And he said, you know, Mom, um, I used to believe that if I died, I'd go to heaven. Um, I don't believe that anymore. So now I don't have anything to ho- hold on to. He doesn't have a hope for afterlife. So I think he's realizing he's not immortal. There's an end to his life like all of ours. But God loves our boys so much, we are confident. We, don't, we can't tell the end of the story. But we know that God, based on these parables, is a, guy, a seeking shepherd who goes looking for the one lost sheep until he finds it. Now, one last thing I want to say about these two stories. Um, you notice at the very end, Jesus uh, tells these two parables, and the very the tagline, the very last uh, summary, summary statement is, I tell you, there's more rejoicing in heaven or more rejoicing among the angels of God when one sinner repents and over 99 or a bunch of them. Friends, that's what we're in the business in, of, is to help folks come to Jesus so we can rejoice. And we're rejoicing with angels. We're rejoicing with the angels of God and the, the family of heaven when people come back to God or come to Christ for the first time. That's what we're all about. Remember that quote, the church is the only institution that exists for the sake of its non-members. Would you fill in the blank for me? I'm going to say that again. I want you, because it's kind of embedded in our head. The church is the only society, the only institution that exists for the sake of its, one more time, the church is the only society that exists for the sake of its, my friends, that's why the church exists. That's why Jesus came, to seek and save the lost. We're found. But if we dare think that we're righteous and we're going to skate into heaven just because we're already saved, we've gone through confirmation, yada, yada. Jesus says, put faith in me, not in faith in confirmation, not in faith in the number of years you've been in church. It's not about that. It's faith in him, Jesus Christ. We sang that song, he is Lord, right? That's the first hymn of the church. Jesus is Lord was the first hymn, the first song, the first motto of the church because that encapsulates everything. And you remember at the very end of Matthew, his last words to his disciples were, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. On that basis, go and make disciples, students of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them all that I've commanded you. So if we're about helping folks come into faith and we're about helping folks grow in faith and we ourselves need to be doing that ourselves, we need to make sure that we are giving our effort towards that. I want to close with a story. You might, I don't know if any of you have ever had the privilege 
of sharing Jesus with somebody who's not yet a believer. Uh, I'm not an expert on that by any means, but I want to tell you a quick story about when I was in uh, seminary, graduate school, to get ready to be a pastor. I was part of a little tiny church. This church reminds you, I think we're, we were small, the one in Vancouver, Canada. I think we were only like about 40. But um, what's really cool is that um, I, I was asked to be part-time on the staff. And uh, we had this dinky little uh, uh, dancing machine, you know, those little tape recorder cassette thing. Yeah, they still existed back then. But I remember one morning I came in to check the messages. And there was this message from this gal. She said, hi, my name is Leslie. I was riding my bike around your property, and I saw your sign. And uh, I'm just interested more about your church. Would you give me a call? Didn't know who this was, so I gave her a call. And so we started chatting. And over time, we began a six-month conversation on the phone. Uh, I'd be talking to her. She had all kinds of reasons why she wouldn't come to church. She was in her mid-30s, I think 33. <coughs> she was having an affair with her boss. She was single. Her, her um, boss is married. And um, she was having an affair with him, long-standing. Uh, she had gone to church when she was a kid, but kind of that faded away into the background. And then I kept inviting her to come to church. And she said, you know, Hollis, I think if I walked through the doors of your church, God would strike me dead. That's a quote, okay? God would strike me dead. I'm sure of it. I said, why? Oh, and then she told me about being in this affair with this, her boss and stuff. And I thought, you know, uh, Leslie, I want to tell you something that... Um, about me. I grew up in the church. I thought you had to scrape and claw your way into heaven. I thought you had to be a goody two-shoes and keep doing that in order to keep get God's attention and keep God's attention and get in the door into heaven. But I learned this thing called grace. It's God's undeserved favor or love towards us for nothing. God loves us because he loves us. God loves you, Leslie, because he loves you for no other reason. Not because you have something you've done and he will never stop loving you for something you haven't done. So it's for her, that was radical. She goes, oh, no, it can't be. I said, well, that's what the Bible says, believe it or not. Again, every, almost every Saturday night, I'd say, hey, can you come to church? So we'd have a half hour, 45-minute conversation. I said, can I pray for you? I'd pray for her. Um, and over time, stuff began to happen. There's a core of people in the church, a prayer group that began to pray for her just every day. And they just had this burden for her. You know, like, we weren't shepherds looking for the lost sheep, but we put out a lot of energy uh, to pray for Leslie. And then um, one day, she's, one Saturday night, I was talking to her. She, she, I said, are you going to come? She goes, yeah, I'll be there tomorrow. Okay, fine. Sunday, no show. Monday morning, I said, hey, just not, no guilt. Just wanted to see how you are. She goes, yeah, I was out drinking with my friends, and I was all ready to go. And I was, we'd had a few rounds, and I, I invited my friends. Hey, you want to come to church with me? And they had laughed, like, You? Because they knew what she was like. But she was so drunk, one of her friends said, you know what, Leslie, you don't want to go to church tonight. You're scared. That's why you're so drunk. And that hit her like, yeah, that's right. She was terrified because she really believed that God would strike her dead if she walked in the doors. So I kept talking to her about stuff. I kept sharing. We kept praying. And then one Sunday, my wife Sue and I got out of our car and we saw this striking young woman in a red dress. She had pancake makeup on, you know, kind of that's really thick on her face. And, and we both looked at each other, and we said, that's Leslie. And sure enough, we went to see her. We greeted her. She was really like, she was terrified. She's like, uh, uh. I mean, she really thought she was going to die, okay? So we walked into church. We had worship afterwards. We had a coffee hour. I hear you guys have treats after this. So I'm going to be here for that. <laughs> but um, we had coffee hour. I said, hey, Leslie, you're still alive. She goes, yeah, I'm 
just waiting for the lightning bolt to come. <laughs> but I said, um, God loves you, whether you believe it or not. It's the truth. And we uh, love you too, and we'd love for you to come back. So she began coming. Uh, another gal and I went to a workplace, and during our lunch break, we had a little Bible study. But there's a whole group of people. It wasn't just me. There's a whole bunch of people praying for her, loving her. And when she came in the door, I mean, we all knew who she was. <laughs> so everybody kind of made a beeline for her and loved on her, you know. And we realized over time what happened. It was a long struggle. I think it took about a year, year and a half for her to come to faith. So it's not a, you know, you tell, share the gospel and bang, it's done. It's not like that. It's like looking for the lost coin, looking for the lost sheep. That's the way it is because there's a battle. The evil one does not want to give up somebody in his kingdom to enter in the kingdom of light, friends. We found out she had had some um, demonic activity. Her, one of her relatives had been like in a Satan worship cult or something. Um, and so she actually told me stories, really weird stories, about how she'd feel an evil presence in her, in her room at night. And this happened on more than one occasion. So we pray. I was like, I'm, I don't know what to do with this. But the word says pray. So I said, okay, Jesus, you got to show up because I don't know what to do. And over time, she began to trust us more. She came, she became involved in more uh, kind of things in the church activities. And then one time, she actually uh, was so uh, scared of all these demonic forces in her, in her room, in her apartment, she actually stayed with one of the families in our church for several days. And this lady was really gifted in prayer. So over time, she would be with her when she would have these experiences. And it's like, um, I don't know if you, you ever saw this old movie back in the 70s, The Exorcist. I mean, it's just very, I mean, the reality of de demons, is, it's, not, it's not just fairy tales, man. It's real. And the evil one, Satan would love to have us think, oh, it's just, that's old-fashioned. It's not real. It's not. It's the real deal. But this uh, family, um, Trudy and Laurie at Brundage, they would together pray for her, and other women would pray, lay hands on her. And I'm not kidding. I think there was some stuff there. Uh, we left to come back to the States after seminary. But um, there was a lot of spiritual junk that had to be pulled out. So I tell you that story, not to make myself look good, okay? Uh, it started with a phone call, man, a, a recording on a voicemail. But I want to encourage us not just to pray for the pastoral search team, but pray, oh, God, help us, help me. You can say, help me look, open my eyes and look for those who are lost and give me a love for them so that I will love them like you do, Jesus. God is in the business of changing us, guys, and he's not done with us yet. No matter how old or young you are, no matter how long you've been hanging around the church with Jesus, God is in the business of changing us until the day we die. Amen? Okay, I'm going to close in prayer, and then I'll turn it over to the worship team. Let's pray. You know, God, um, I think I said a few things that I planned to say in the sermon, but thank you for your Holy Spirit coming and showing up uh, to impress us with the things that you want to say to us. And I pray for my friends here. Thank you so much for their showing up today and for the faithfulness of Bethel Covenant Church in here in Ellsbury. We thank you, Lord, that you are doing a new thing. And you tell us, why do you despise their small things? You don't have to be big. You don't have to have big, be a big splash church. You just got to be faithful. So I pray for these brothers and sisters here at Bethel uh, Covenant Ellsbury and for myself too, that you, Lord, would be working to lead us in the way we should go. 
Help us to know the people that you are drawing us to. Give us a burden to pray for and love those who are beyond our loving, the unlovable, the sinners and tax collectors, those guys who are kind of the riffraff of the earth. But Lord, thank you that you love them. Give us a supernatural capacity that's way beyond us. It ain't about us. It's about you and your power to love in Jesus' name and to go seeking for them, praying for them, inviting them, drawing them to you that there may be many new people who come to faith in Jesus Christ, even in this year and beyond. So, Lord, thank you for hearing our prayer. We bless you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Pastor Ken, I want to tell you, uh, thank you so much. Uh, you really touched me. Yes, indeed. <laughs>